Since the advent of DNA evidence, many convictions have now been overturned. But often, the attention paid to the exonerations ends when the former prisoner leaves the prison doors. That's not where it ends for these people, though. And today I'm speaking with Allison Flowers, the author of Exoneree Diaries, The Fight for Innocence, Independence, and Identity, to find out more about what kind of conditions people face after they have been released from prison. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Allison, what made you interested in this topic to begin with? So I started out as a TV reporter in the Deep South where I was on the criminal justice beat. And uh, at that time, I had an opportunity to meet an exoneree. I also had an opportunity to see an execution be stayed while I was on my way to that execution. And so that got me really interested in innocence issues. Um, I moved up to Chicago and started working for the Medill Justice Project, where I was working with groups of students as a staffer investigating potentially wrongful murder convictions. And while I was doing that work, which is really important, I was on the front end of this thing, I realized one day, you know, we're doing all this work to try and free the innocent from prison, but what happens when those innocent people are freed? What resources do they have? Who is in their life? And so I started to probe that question. um, And what I discovered was a media myth that release from prison is a happy ending if you're innocent. In fact, it's not an ending at all. It's just the beginning of another set of struggles. I really found it interesting the way you structured this book, which was profiling four different exonerees primarily and following their stories. And I have to say something that surprised me is that a lot of these people, you hear about settlements after someone has been exonerated from a crime and what makes the news are these million dollar or multi-million dollar settlements. But that is not the reality for most of these exonerees. Is that correct? That's correct. So suing the city or police department successfully is pretty rare. So the multi-million dollar settlements that people hear about in the media are really won by the few. Uh, That's because few cases, even if they're wrongful conviction cases, are well suited for civil litigation, proving official misconduct, even though it's present in more than half of exonerations that we know of, is very difficult. Um, Even here in Chicago, where I live, where more than 97% of police misconduct complaints go undisciplined. Um, So actually, the option that's available to some exonerees uh, would be if they live in a state that has a compensation law, a state compensation law. But only 30 states right now and D.C., have those on the books. And even those laws really fall short and they're not uniform from state to state. So, um, you know, there are 20 states that still don't have anything at all. But for those that do compensate in Illinois, for example, the most you can get for a wrongful conviction is $200,000. And on top of that, the burden of proof is on you. So you have to petition a court again, get a lawyer, which a lot of exonerees are not eager for another adversarial legal process. And you have to basically prove your innocence to the court, which is a different, if not higher, standard of proof than it took to originally convict someone. And that's what it takes in order to earn a certificate of innocence, uh, which allows you to be compensated in the state of Illinois. In some states, if you contributed to your wrongful conviction in some way, which the states consider falsely confessing or maybe pleading guilty as having contributed, then you're not eligible for compensation. And we know that false confessions happen about 13% of the time, and that, of course, plea deals and plea bargains happen a lot more frequently than that. 
Well, and indeed, I live in Chicago, too, and I think that most people in the state know about the Chicago police captain, John Bird, who actually would torture suspects into confessing. That's so right. Would that count towards contributing to your own conviction? So in Illinois, a false confession is not typically something that would prevent you from seeking compensation, but pleading guilty might be a little dicier. Uh, that's something that they have re-examined. But in other states, that's still on the books and it rules out a lot of exonerees. Not to mention that even if you qualify for compensation, let's say um, you're unable to prove your innocence because witnesses have died or evidence has been destroyed during your very long incarceration. So proving your innocence versus showing that you weren't guilty of something uh, is much more difficult and it's a burden for exonerees when they're just trying to make their way in the world. So let's talk a little bit more about the four people who you profile in depth in Exoneree Diaries, Christine, Jacques, James, and Antoine. How did you end up focusing on these four and their stories? Well, I selected the four of them because, one, they're racially diverse, and I wanted to be sure to address the race component uh, of the wrongful conviction equation. Um, and on top of that, their cases reflect the different breakdowns in the criminal justice system and the ways in which people are wrongly convicted. So with Jacques' case, um, he's a former gang member who was mistakenly identified on a murder charge by a 12-year-old boy. That boy was pressured into blaming Jacques for the crime by prosecutors, even though he knew he had made a mistake in his original eyewitness identification, if you even want to call it that. He said a guy in a photo book kind of looked like the shooter, and that photo happened to be Jacques. Um, so that's eyewitness misidentification. In Antoine's case and James's case, we have false accusations as being the primary reason that they were wrongly convicted. And that's actually the number one reason that people are wrongly convicted. It accounts for more than half of exoneration. So something as simple as and easy to do as perjury or just testifying against someone in court, perhaps because you're incentivized by getting a deal on your own case, that definitely accounts for a lot of wrongful convictions. And then also in James' case and Christine's case, we see um, bad arson science or bad forensics involved, which is a contributing factor to a lot of wrongful convictions. And also with Christine, we sort of see the sexism that a lot of women face throughout the criminal justice process, um, as well as official misconduct in which, you know, police or prosecutors hide evidence or change evidence and that sort of thing, which accounts for a lot of wrongful convictions as well. So that's why I focused in on those four cases. I wanted to kind of do a 360 view of the criminal justice system and its flaws and kind of show how, um, how a wrongful conviction can happen to anybody. Allison, over the course of what must have been years following these people and learning more about their lives and meeting their family members, was it ever difficult to maintain any sort of journalistic distance? Um, did you find yourself really rooting for people, becoming frustrated with what they were facing? What was that like for you personally? Well, when you're reporting on people so intimately and, you know, they're really, you know, you have them on the hook to provide you with some of the most intimate details of their lives as well as their most painful memories, you know, you can't do that without a relationship. And so distance wasn't really an option if I was going to get the story and also be very mindful to not 
re-traumatize them or cause more harm in their lives. So, you know, I think there was a great deal of reciprocity involved, you know, in order to have them share, you have to share a part of your life. And so, you know, they're real relationships. And I think the, the depth of the portraits reflect that. But, you know, it was very difficult, especially when it came to reporting on and writing about the woman exoneree in the book. Um, you know, women are, they face a unique set of challenges as wrongly convicted people. So 43% of women exonerees were actually convicted of harming or killing a child or loved one in their care. And so, you know, oftentimes there was no crime that actually occurred. It was an accident. And so in Christine's case, she's very textbook woman exoneree, meaning that she was wrongly convicted of killing her three-year-old son, Tony, who died in a trailer fire. Um, you know, the other men in the book, the three other exonerees, while they've been through, you know, they've been to hell and back with their stories, ultimately they didn't know the victim that they were accused of harming. Whereas with Christine, not only was she wrongly convicted, but she lost a child and was unable to grieve for that child. And so to interview her actually took much, much longer. It was about a year and a half of nearly weekly interviews um, because, you know, sometimes it was better to just sit and have a cup of coffee or dinner with her and not probe that particular day and wait until a couple of weeks later. And that was something that I had to kind of uh, reconcile and commit myself to. So, you know, it's the ultimate journalistic question, you know, how close can you get to a source? And I actually feel very close to these exonerees, but they knew that I wasn't going to, you know, go easy on them. I didn't want these to be sappy or saccharine portraits. I really wanted to portray them as deeply flawed human beings as they are, which is, you know, much more interesting, of course. Um, and over the course of time, you know, you find out things about them and, um, you know, there was never really much of a negotiation. I think they always knew that I was going to tell the real story, despite our relationship. Was there anything that you found particularly surprising that you learned in the course of reporting this book? Not necessarily surprising, but there were a lot of things that I had to check out. One of the men in the book, Antoine, had reported to me that his son was murdered while he was behind bars and he was unable to attend the funeral. And on top of that, while he was awaiting a new trial on appeal and being held at Cook County Jail, he told me that they housed him briefly with the man who killed his son. And so that's a huge allegation that basically, I don't want to call it a wild goose chase because it actually did check out, but that took probably two months of my time to confirm because this was so long ago. And you know, I mean, just to go back and, and uh, look at the records and, and get all the facts straight. So, so that was something that, you know, was, was very sad, of course, to work on and, and dedicate myself to just confirming that one piece. But that was such an important part of his story. And he very much felt that that was done so that he would, you know, slip up and harm the guy and maybe not earn his freedom after all. So he denied housing, which is an inmate's way of saying, put me in solitary, I can't be with whoever I'm in the cell with. And so he had, you know, the presence of mind to do that. So I have heard many people claim that wrongful convictions aren't actually a huge problem because even though some of these men may have been convicted of the wrong crime, they were still bad guys, they'd still done other things. Can you talk about the harm that wrongful conviction does to society and to the very appearance of justice? 
Yes. So everyone pays for a wrongful conviction. There's, of course, the defendant or, or inmate himself or herself. There's that person's family. There's that person's community. Um, and ultimately, it's the taxpayer who is paying for prison, which is expensive per inmate. And also, when that person comes out, if they're successful in seeking state compensation or suing this city or state, then, of course, we're paying again for that. So uh, they're extremely costly, even if you don't feel bad for the people that it happens to. And certainly, having some sort of criminal history or criminal record uh, makes you known to police. And I would say that that increases your likelihood of uh, having a wrongful conviction happen to you. But actually, what I want people to take away from the book is that while these are extraordinary people who have really beat remarkable odds to be with us and share their stories with us, that these are, in fact, very ordinary people as well. I mean, if you take Christine's case, she didn't even have so much as a parking ticket on her record when she was wrongly convicted of killing her son. Of course, the other three men in the book did have somewhat of a criminal record, um, but not all of it was actually real. Uh, In Antoine's case, he had a couple of drug cases and um, uh, ammunition, firearms violation charge type thing. But, you know, he doesn't claim responsibility for any of those. He very much sticks to his story that, the police planted that evidence on him, and I really feel like he would tell me the truth if if it were otherwise. So while he did have a criminal record, he wasn't actually doing the things that he was accused of. Um, you know, and I think it's sort of a the wrong question to be asking, you know, and it comes from maybe a more punitive mindset or people who want to be tough on crime or don't really have sympathy for people who are behind bars and are guilty, but maybe they have some level of sympathy or empathy for people who are innocent. And that's actually sort of what my book is trying to subvert in some way. Um, You know, 2.3 million people are locked up in prisons, jails, immigration facilities, or otherwise in this country. You know, two to five percent of them are sort of what the studies say could be innocent. I think it's much higher than that which is probably, you know, looking at 100 to 200,000 people could be innocent behind bars. And the exonerees that I've talked to say that it's much higher as well. Um, But you'll get to know people in the book that are guilty or did whatever crime uh, they're accused of doing. Um, And you meet them behind bars and you really come to realize their backstories and how they ended up in a position to be incarcerated And, you know, a lot of times people are locked up for being poor, not actually for the crime that they're accused of, or the crime that they're accused of is nonviolent, and maybe it's not best for them to be locked up in the first place. So, yeah, that's a common criticism, you know, oh, well, maybe they didn't do this crime, but they did something else. But I don't really pay much credence to that. And I I do hope that the book suggests another point of view there. So, Allison, something we're very interested in at the ABA Journal is what we're calling collateral consequences. So after you leave prison, whether you were justly or unjustly convicted, all of the things that you face in trying to reenter society, for these exonerees that you profiled, even though they had been exonerated, they just kept coming up against wall after wall that prevented them from regaining any sort of life. Can you talk a little bit about that process that they went through, what kind of difficulties are faced by people who the legal system has said we wrongfully convicted? Well, first of all, when you leave prison as an exoneree, 
you don't receive any compensation. So there's not a dime. You don't even get a bus pass, which is actually what, you know, a lot of parolees will get, but you don't even get that as an exoneree. Uh, there are no social services, no counseling, no medical, no dental, which if I can, a quick aside on dental, a lot of the exonerees I know have had many teeth pulled in prison, which is pretty much the extent of dental care behind bars, um, if it exists at all. And so when they come out, actually dental is a huge need and priority in their life. And you know, when you have a sore mouth or a sore tooth or whatever, that's pretty much all you can think about. But there's really no way for them to access medical or dental or anything like that. Your record is also not automatically expunged, so you can't find work very easily. You would think that when you're exonerated, when you leave prison on new evidence or your conviction has been overturned or vacated based on new evidence, that, of course, that wouldn't be on your record anymore. But it is. And you have to, again, depending on the state you live in, uh, go to great efforts to expunge it. And some states, you can never get it expunged. Or you're released in such a way that you could still be retried, even though it was new evidence that released you. And so how are you supposed to go about your life when you still have a murder conviction on your record? It's not very easy to get a job under those circumstances. Um, and on top of that, you know, a lot of your support system, if you had one to begin with, has dissipated. Your family members may have died. Um, your spouse probably divorced you and your kids don't know who you are anymore. So you're really, the odds are stacked against you as an exoneree leaving prison. It's very difficult to rebound. Um, and there aren't many organizations or resources that have kind of tackled this issue. There are a few that are doing good work, but you know, as great and as vast as the Innocence Network is, um, and it is actively fighting for policies to improve the lives of exonerees, ultimately, you know, they're terrific lawyers. <laughs> you know, they're not social workers who are necessarily fully equipped to handle, you know, getting someone the kind of care that they need. So, Allison, a story from my personal background, I was a reporter in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, when a very big exoneration story came about from a man named Daryl Hunt was exonerated of the murder of a woman who'd actually worked for the newspaper that I was then working for. There were members of the community who, even after it was shown that the DNA had implicated another man, uh, you know, there were other confessions, uh, there was you know, misconduct shown, there were still people in the community who could not accept that he had had nothing to do with this woman's death and who refused to acknowledge all of the issues with the case and still thought, well, okay, even if this other guy had done it, Daryl Hunt must have also been involved. And the story has a very sad ending. Um, Daryl Hunt did commit suicide at a point after his exoneration and release from prison. Could you talk a little bit about community reaction to exonerees? Yes. So exonerees really live behind a wall of suspicion for the rest of their lives. They feel as though they're still in the state's back pocket, even though they've been cleared of the original crime, you know, that they went to prison for. And that can be very difficult. Um, even if you have gone so far as to get a certificate of innocence, which is sort of the official state document showing that you're fully exonerated. A lot of employers and people like that don't really don't really care about that. But there's also the, sort of this other hidden community that I address in the afterword of my book, and those would be victims' families. You know, after a long incarceration and feeling like you got the right guy and you have this sense of justice and perhaps closure for having lost your loved one, to suddenly see that same person walk free in sort of this 
brief triumphant moment, even though we know it doesn't end there for the exoneree. But to see that, especially if there's a media attention, can be absolutely devastating. And I look at the oldest wrongful conviction case in Illinois, where two men were put away for a little girl's rape and murder. And they were released on DNA evidence some almost 35 years later. And so I interviewed the sister of the little girl who is now grown, of course, and has her own family. And she just attests to how awful that was for her family. And she attended their civil trials as well, uh, where they were, you know, trying to sue. And, you know, she just couldn't believe what was happening. And that's a very common narrative. I mean, the way victims' families are approached in all of this is often, you know, without a lot of care. They might find out when, you know, the general public is finding out that someone is being released. So I think there could be a lot more care about how they are approached about the new evidence that may be clearing the person that they thought was guilty. Um, but sadly, you know, many, uh, many of them are unable to really accept the new evidence of innocence. There was a University of Michigan study done or a researcher who published it, I think, in the Cornell Law Review um, and looked at death row cases and families of victims and whether they were able to um, accept the exoneration when it occurred. And really, they overwhelmingly were not able to accept the new evidence of innocence unless there was an alternative suspect you know, confirmed through DNA or perhaps a confession that would allow them to kind of psychologically get there. So it's definitely another casualty of the system. One of the men you profiled, Jacques, uh, he was accused of killing a young man named Felix. And after he was exonerated, the state just closed the cold case on Felix's murder, saying that too much time had passed. And so no one would be looking into who really had killed Felix. And after I read that passage in your book, my heart just sank for that family. Did you speak to them particularly? I reached out to them and very much wanted to speak to them. I never got a response back. Um, they were actually interviewed by the TV news media right after Jacques' release. And they didn't so much make, you know, form a, an opinion about his innocence or guilt as I would expect them to have, um, but they were more putting the pressure on the state to reinvestigate the case and find out who really did this. Or, you know, basically saying to have this all reopened again was very painful for them. But, you know, that's another um, that's another collateral consequence, as you say, for wrongful convictions is after the loss of the passage of time, you know, you are it is very difficult to reinvestigate a case and find out who really did this. And in his case, or in the case of Felix's murder, there were two alternative suspects who um, eventually law enforcement kind of lost track of. And the innocence investigators years later, when they were working on Jacques' case, were unable to locate as well. Speaking of time passing, it must be so strange to have been behind bars for, say, 20 years or longer and all of a sudden emerge into a world full of new technology, even new language, talking about, oh, I'll, I'll just Google that. How weird and Twilight Zone-esque did the people you talked to find that transition? Oh, they found it extremely jarring. I mean, in James Kleppelberg's case, it's funny that you mentioned Google. You know, one of his best quotes in the book is when he says, you type my name into Google and it lights up like a Christmas tree, um, which is just sort of a funny juxtaposition of like, not understanding Google and also like the quaint image of a Christmas tree lighting up. But, you know, when he was first released, he hopped on an airplane for the first time in, 
you know, 25 years. Um, he was at Menard Prison in Illinois, which is actually closer to Mississippi than it is to Chicago. It is so far south in the state, it is very far from Chicago. And so the easiest way to get back to Chicago is to hop on a plane from St. Louis, uh, from Menard. And so he did that and he couldn't believe the TSA. Of course, this is a post 9-11 world. And his lawyer got a call on his cell phone that was actually for James from a, an estranged daughter. And, um, you know, James said, hey, did you know that I can check email on this phone, too? Like, it's email. And, you know, the world is just so different. You know, there were floppy disks when a lot of these people went behind bars. And, you know, Jock's sister, for example, said, hey, you want to go to Subway? And, you know, once he was out, you want to go get a sandwich, you want to go to Subway. And he had no idea what she was talking about. He thought she meant the actual Subway. So, um, you know, those are just a few examples of how, you know, technology has sort of created this illusion of ease. But for an exoneree experiencing it for the first time, um, it's a lot more difficult to navigate. Allison, three of the people that you profile in Exoneree Diaries are men and only one is a woman. What are the particular difficulties faced by women in the justice system in proving their innocence or even if they have committed the crime, being behind bars, being sentenced, and what their gender has to do with the way that they're treated? So sexism really lurks at every stage of a woman's case from the moment she's interrogated and onward. Um, there's this horrible manual called the Reed Manual, which is used by most law enforcement agencies. Um, it's called the Reed Technique as well. And it's sort of a nine-step way to try and garner a confession from a suspect. But there's a special instruction in the read manual for women um, advising investigators that a woman may cry to manipulate you um, and that it's a final yet insincere effort to gain sympathy. Uh, but when you consider that when it comes to a woman who is wrongly convicted and, you know, almost half of the time women exonerees were convicted for harming or killing a child or loved one in their care and that there was no real crime in two thirds of their cases, there was, it was either an accident or something else, you know, the tears that they're shedding could actually be tears of grief for the child that they just lost. In Christine's case, she had lost her son hours before investigators came for her at the hospital where she was being treated for her own injuries from the fire. You know, her hair was singed, her nose was blistered, she was coughing up black phlegm. And that's when investigators descended on her and tape recorded her. And then later that day, wanted her to come back after she was released from the hospital. She had lost everything in the fire that had claimed the life of her child. And she basically had to walk barefoot into the sheriff's office um, because she had no shoes left. They were all burned up in the fire. And so, you know, the degree to which her her tears uh, created suspicion, I mean, they very much focused in on her and were immediately suspicious that she had something to do with her son's death. And on top of that, when it came time for her to be sentenced, um, when she was out on bond, she became pregnant with another son. So by the time she went to trial, um, she was starting to you know, barely show her pregnancy. In any case, that's when the judge almost repeated the words that you hear in the read manual that women are crying or they're being, you know, insincere to, uh, to gain sympathy. He basically, in his sentencing of her, which he did so very harshly, he accused her of becoming pregnant in order to gain sympathy in the sentencing process. The media very much criticized Christine for not crying at trial. Well, she was told not to cry, but then they said that she was a cold-hearted killer as a result, you know, for not crying. 
So, you know, women sort of, you know, can do no right when it comes to if you cry or don't cry. And then, you know, the judge threatened that she would never see her son again and that she would not be able to to ever raise him. He would see to it that the child was adopted out. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of sexism that women encounter. And especially when you're dealing with the loss of your own child, you know, that can be very difficult, you know, even more so than for a male exoneree, perhaps. And, you know, I would say that the other tragedy, of course, if you're a woman who's incarcerated for a long time for something you didn't do, is sort of the toll it takes on your own fertility if you want to have more children. You know, she wasn't able to parent the child that she eventually had behind bars. Um, You know, she did the best she could from prison. But when she came out, she very much wanted to be a mother again. And so a big part of her story is sort of this fleeting quest for fertility that, you know, may never work out for her in the end um, because of the loss of time. So, Allison, what's next for you? Are you going to continue this kind of work looking at exonerations or have you identified a new project that you want to work on? So what is next for me? Uh, Two things. One, I work at a really great production company on the south side of Chicago called the Invisible Institute, where we look at a lot of criminal justice issues, in particular police misconduct. So we have something called the Citizens Police Data Project, uh, which is the largest online database of police misconduct complaints that focuses in Chicago. So that is something that takes up a lot of my time, of course. And then the other piece is that I am uh, expecting a child in uh, September, which is right around the corner. So I'll be pretty busy with that and figuring out what that means for my life. (laughs) So, Well, congratulations with that. If our listeners want to get involved in any organization supporting exonerees, uh, is there any website they should go to, organization they should look into that you recommend? Yes. So I have some extensive resources listed in the back of my book, um, which really kind of spans the criminal justice circuit from looking at Chicago bail funds, uh, so a community bail bond fund to help people um, basically make their bond when they're being held at the Cook County Jail. And there are some other organizations elsewhere in the country that do similar work and other organizations. When it comes to exonerees specifically, um, there are really just a handful. So there's one in Chicago called Life After Innocence, which helps Illinois exonerees. There's another organization out of California called After Innocence, Um, And that's run almost single-handedly by one man who quit his job as a lawyer to help with the exoneree issue. So he has helped more than 300 exonerees, which is a sizable chunk of the known exoneree population that's still alive. He's helped a lot of them get dental and medical and uh, get set up for counseling and compensation and things like that, clearing their records. And so he basically will take any exoneree from any state and try to see to it and stick with them and make sure that they're able to get whatever resources could be afforded to them. So his name is John Eldon. He's a lawyer out of California who works full-time for an organization he started called After Innocence. And he's really you know, doing the work and, and accompanying these exonerees on their After Innocence journeys. Well, Allison, thank you so much for talking to us today. Again, for our listeners, her book is called Exoneree Diaries, The Fight for Innocence, Independence, and Identity. Thanks again, Allison. Thank you.